we're moving to Scotland in a month. Um, so I am very excited, but nervous. And that's exactly how I'm feeling right now. <laughs> Hi, my name is Hee Jung. Uh, my husband Ben, my son Eugene, and I have been attending restoration since summer 2019. Um, so today marks uh, exactly three years. And I want to thank Pastor Rick for giving me this opportunity to share the gospel with you all today. Recently, I came across this book written by a secular anthropologist titled, When God Talks Back. As a psychologically trained anthropologist, this author's quest was mainly to answer this, this question. How, in the face of doubt and uncertainty, does God become real, real for someone? This intriguing question led her to conduct a study of a Christian church community. After her two-year research project, she concluded that it is a Christian practice, a prayer, which makes God real. Is that better? <laughs> this conclusion was fascinating and surprising for her, but it's not a coincidence that she landed on the conclusion because Christian prayer is so distinctively different from any other way of prayer. Prayer is traditionally described as a way to encounter God and to make our petitions to him. But as the Lord's Prayer, our passage today teaches, Christian prayer is meant to go well beyond the simple premise. No one here would object to saying that the Lord's Prayer is Christianity's signature prayer. We pray it, memorize it, recite it, teach it. Indeed, the Lord's Prayer is the most spoken prayer among Christians. But ironically, as Tim Keller rightly observes, it's a familiarity obscures its theological richness. Thus today, I'd like to draw your attention to how the Lord's Prayer not only uniquely addresses fundamental human needs, but also points to a world beyond us, a world worthy of life, aimed at true human flourishing. Our passage is divided into two parts, the Lord's Prayer and Jesus' exhortations on prayer. Let me start with the Lord's Prayer. First, it starts with calling on God as our Father. Our Father, hallowed be your name. This is a very significant introduction because it bluntly refers to God as a personal God who has a name and a defined intimate relationship. We are not blindly pray praying to an unknown God. We are praying to a specific God, our Father. And we learn that he has a kingdom. Your kingdom come. From this, we learn that the Lord's Prayer is about God's kingdom, more correctly, the coming kingdom of God. Then Jesus put forth three petitions. Each petition has a significant meaning and purpose and aims at the realization of the kingdom of God in our lives. So let's look into each petition. The first petition reads, give us each day our daily bread. What comes to your mind when you hear this petition? One, it addresses that we are physical beings and we need resources to maintain our existence. So this prayer is simply asking for resource for our physical needs. But notice, it's not just the bread, but daily bread. I don't think Jesus put the word daily by accident. We remember the manna story in Exodus 16. In this story, God provided fresh manna every day for the Israelites, and they were supposed to gather enough just for one day. Whoever gathers more than a day's need, all extra 
saved up for the future when spoiled and wasted. Though they were told to gather it just for one day, some people couldn't resist gathering more. It's an intri intrinsic human struggle to want more than what we need. Growing up as an Asian, I was taught that saving money is more than a wise thing to do. I was taught it is a virtue. For me, having a big savings account is a virtuous thing to do, and it can never be too big. Extra is good, never stop at daily. But as you know, this focus on savings can turn into a way to have a sense of security and comfort. So if I have any extra money, I have to put it in my savings, otherwise it'll make me so anxious. Even after all these years being Christian and learning and growing, I still struggle. I struggled when we decided to give away the stimulus checks during the pandemic. And I struggle every year when we have to tie it out of the tax returns because we tie it out of the gross income. <laughs> Yeah, it's a constant struggle. And I struggle when we get a bonus. I struggle with extra. My anxious heart wants to negotiate and tries to find a way to keep more and more and more, though I have enough for the day, the month, and the year. I, my struggles probably resonate with some of you. There's no limit in human desire. And we know that this boundless desire for security and possessions only make us more anxious about the things or future we cannot control. Thus, this petition for daily bread is so crucial. It helps us take ourselves off the hook of human delusion, anxieties, and pride. It redirects us to whom we belong and on what we should depend. God knows we need a fresh daily resource, energy, and strength for life's unique challenges and trials. Not only physical needs, but emotional and spiritual needs as well. The New Testament wisely calls manna spiritual food and draws parallels with the bread we receive at the Lord's table. So by praying this petition, we keep ourselves from falling into a trip of, trip, trap of sinful human notion that we can control our future, which will only lead us to delusion illusion, and self-centeredness. Who prays for mere bread? Only the hungry. Thus, this petition is a picture of a man who's hungry for God and realize that he needs to depend on God, who is his only provider. Now we move to the second petition. Forgive us our sins, for, our, uh, for, for we ourselves forgive anyone who indebted to us. First of all, this prayer teaches we are relational beings. We are made to be in, in relationship with God and our fellow humans. During the pandemic, we all experienced how hard it, it was not to be connected to other people. Lots of people got anxious and depressed. The pandemic was a, such a social trauma. We need to be connected to other people. But Human connection doesn't automatically guarantee a flourishing relationship. Here in this prayer, Jesus teaches us what makes relationships flourish as he puts forgiveness at the center of our lives. Last fall, when we visited New York, one of our dear friends invited us and some other people to his Connecticut home for dinner. And we sat around their beautifully arranged dining table making small talk over dinner. 
when her friend mentioned that he and his wife just celebrated their uh, 45th wedding anniversary, one of us asked them if they could share their secret of a long, happy marriage. His wife quickly jumped in and said, forgiveness. Immediately, there was a moment of solemn silence among us. We believe her answer hit, uh, I believe, her answer hit everybody like lightning. It was a truly wise, prof profound answer. Forgiveness is the key to any relationships, just as our friend testified. In fact, it is one of the most important aspects of human life. This petition, however, can be misunderstood. If we understand it as our forgiveness for others is a condition for God's forgiveness, we are missing the point. God's forgiveness is not based on our acts of forgiveness. This petition simply holds out the reality of forgiveness as one to be received. It points to Jesus' sacrifice, which made it possible for us to be right before God. In this petition, we ask God to remind us of his promise that he will give us when we ask him and we enact his promise. This petition also affirms that God's forgiveness is the only basis from which our forgiveness for others is possible. When we know this truth and deeply understand how we are forgiven and what is forgiven, this deep understanding ultimately enables us to forgive others. This sounds simple, but is a profound secret for life in a flourishing relationship. If you have forgiven others, you would know well that forgiveness is hard. It is hard because it means you have to bear the weight of sin done against you. But deep down in your hearts, you know, and I know, and we know that forgiveness is the only way our broken relationships, basically every relationship we have can be restored and move towards hope and future. God's forgiveness frees us from our inherent guilt and shame and we create a newness in us. This newness in us entails the hope that, that a new realm of life is possible. A Scottish theologian and scholar, Oliver O'Donovan, describes the power of this petition so well. In his book, Self, Word, and Time, says, new creation is precisely what this prayer is about. In this prayer, we seek something more radical and more real than an indulgent adjustment of the scales in our favor. We ask for this continuity, for the inauguration of a new justice. He further goes and said, to desire pardon is not to desire that God should wink or bend. It is to ask something that of its nature transforms the world, and with the world, our neighbor, our enemy, our established right and identity. He says in this prayer, we are asking God for discontinuity of the vicious cycle of sin and injustice and asking for freedom, rejuvenated hope, and rebuilt trust and renewed strength so we may keep on pursuing relationships in this world and thrive in them. This is a picture of the coming kingdom of God realized on earth in our lives. Lastly, the third petition reads, lead us into temptation. What does this petition say about humanity? We are people who are prone to be tempted. The word temptation in Greek is peirasmos. It means either enticement to sin or trial or test. Now, it is important to remember 
God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one, James 1.13 proclaims. God never tempts us, but he sometimes does bring us to be in the presence of many tests and trials. We know Jesus was also brought by the Spirit to be tempted as well. Our life is full of temptations. Each day, we step into new temptations. Bad news is, temptation look for prey. When we are tempted, we are tempted to something that seems inevitable, plausible, desirable. When Adam and Eve were tempted, they were enticed to the, to the lie that was plausible and desirable. You can be like God, Satan tempted. Instead of refusing to entertain the thought of becoming like God, they gave in to their desires. As a result, their sense of morality and moral imagination were seriously crippled. What should be good has become bad. What should be intelligible has become unintelligible. Instead of having freedom, they got enslaved to their own deceitful hearts. This is our story. Temptations are the gateway to sin, and sin creates delusion and chaos because the moment we sin, we lose touch with God. This old lie is still around us, luring us through modern-day therapeutic psychology. Follow your heart, be yourself, be authentic, be liberated. It's basically saying, be your own God, just like the Satan's lie. There's a strong pushback against the coming kingdom of God in this world and within our hearts. We struggle to refuse the lie of the world, the desires of your hearts, and evil status quo. Jesus knows we need his help. This petition is not praying to God to take away temptations. It's asking God to let us not to be led into situations or positions where we get overwhelmed by it all and become liable to sin. We are asking God to give us restored moral and spiritual strength so we may not entertain and consider giving in to sin and evil, both inside and out, and instead choose life, love, and justice. Jesus knows exactly how it feels like when we are tempted because he, he himself was tempted as a man. The temptations were real for him. He knows how strongly they can feel, but he knows how to face them. He's telling us, there's a way out. Go to your father, ask him to help through the time of tests and trials. With this petition, we can face dangers, trials, and tests boldly because it points to the promise that we are given an immovable, unshakable rock on which we are able to stand. The one who through temptation, trials, and obedience was proved to be the Son of God and be our adequate Savior. The one who will be with us eternally in and through the Holy Spirit, who is our helper, counselor, and advocate. As we close, let's consider Jesus' exhortations. After Jesus taught this prayer, he tells this story to um, uh, story of the man asking the neighbor for bread in verses 5 to uh, 8 to show us the kind of picture he had in mind about how we approach God in prayer. As many commentators mentioned, this story is about persistence. I think it is also about boldness and shamelessness. The man in the story didn't seem to consider any personal manner or social etiquette. But the story tells it is his bold, shameless, relentless request that will give him what he needs. 
Boldness and shame, uh, shamelessness are the benchmark of an intimate relationship like between a parent and a child. When little children ask their parents to do something, they don't think about, their, they don't think about formality. They don't think about language skills or timing. They only think about their desperate needs. Imagine a two-year-old boy wondering whether he should ask his mother to change his diaper because mom seems too busy. That would be so strange. This is how we are approach God when we pray. Boldly, shamelessly, relentlessly bringing our petitions and asking him to give what we desperately need at that moment. Jesus then describes what kind of father we have in verses 11 and 12. God is not some no-nonsense, harsh, and rigid father who gives you something absolutely contradicting to what you ask for. Our father is a good father who knows exactly what we need even before we ask him. Then Jesus further says, the heavenly father will give you, uh, give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. Why the mention of the Holy Spirit here? Is the Holy Spirit what he wants us to ask for ultimately? I think that's what Luke is getting at here. Right before this, Jesus in verse 9 suggests us the picture of this unceasing interaction happening in our act of praying. What is prayer about ultimately? Having an unceasing, never-ending fellowship with God our Father. This fellowship changes our appetite for life. A week ago, Ben's dear old friend visited us. They started talking about the foolish ways of their youth with a mix of laughter and lament, and how for some it has been hard to step away from the more destructive aspects of this old life. She reflected that her marriage has allowed this freedom for newness. She shared that her marriage and the life she and her husband pursue and enjoy now has changed her and created space for her to find who she really is. She says she can't go back to who she was because she so valued the person she has discovered. Her story reminds, reminds that a good intimate relationship has a transformative and liberating power. The fellowship we have with God in our prayers transforms us. It changes our needs, lifestyle, desires, and help us have a better self-knowledge. Prayer is the only entryway into genuine self-knowledge, Tim Keller insightfully points out. True self-knowledge begins with the seeing that we need the Holy Spirit and our life should depend on him. Luke's record of Jesus' teaching ends in a bit surprising way. In the beginning of the passage, Jesus is asked about how to pray. After all his instruction, his final words point to the gift of the Holy Spirit. It is as if he's saying the secret to prayer is ultimately the Holy Spirit. It is not about what we do, but about a gift from God given freely through Jesus. Here we see the true nature of the gospel. The Lord's Prayer, properly heard, is this reorienting, life-directing song of prayer put together by Jesus. It's a picture of the divine design for life for his children who is living this already, but not yet kingdom of God. It promises and delivers a final resting spot where we can have complete sufficiency, sufficiency, peace, freedom, and justice through the unceasing fellowship in and through the Holy Spirit. 
When we pray the Lord's Prayer, we pray the hungry be fed, justice done, devils defeated. We pray God's kingdom to come and reign on us in our lives and the world. This is the picture of the world Jesus had in mind for his people. The Lord's Prayer is communal in nature, written in first-person plural. We never pray it alone. We pray it with Jesus and other believers. Here Jesus, as our older, here, Jesus, as our older brother, is inviting us to his coming kingdom and to pray with, with him. Friends, let's accept this invitation and join with him in this prayer. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. <laughs>